Chapter Thirty Six of the Uncommercial Traveler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ginger Cupolo. The Uncommercial Traveler by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirty Six. Once upon a time, no matter when. I was engaged in a pursuit, no matter what, which could be transacted by myself alone, and which I could have no help, which imposed a constant strain on the attention, memory, observation, and physical powers, and which involved an almost fabulous amount of change of place and rapid railway traveling. I had followed this pursuit through an exceptionally trying winter in an always trying climate, and had resumed it in England after but a brief repose. Thus it came to be prolonged until, at length, and, as it seemed all of a sudden, it so wore me out that I could not rely, with my usual cheerful confidence, upon myself to achieve the constantly recurring task, and begin to feel, for the first time in my life, giddy, jarred, shaken, faint, uncertain of voice and sight and tread and touch, and dull of spirit. The medical advice I sought within a few hours was given in two words, instant rest. Being accustomed to observe myself as curiously as if I were another man, and knowing the advice to meet my only need, I instantly halted in the pursuit of which I speak, and rested. My intention was, to interpose, as it were, a fly-leaf in the book of my life, in which nothing should be written from without for a brief season of a few weeks but some very singular experiences recorded themselves on this same fly-leaf, and I am going to relate them literally. I repeat the word, literally. My first odd experience was of the remarkable coincidence between my case and the general mind, and one Mr. Myrtle's, as I find it recorded in a work of fiction called Little Dorrit. To be sure, Mr. Myrtle was a swindler, forger, and thief, and my calling had been of a less harmful and less remunerative nature, but it was all one for that. Here is Mr. Myrtle's case. At first he was dead of all the diseases that ever were known, and of several brand new maladies invented with the speed of light to meet the demand of the occasion. He had concealed a dropsy from infancy. He had inherited a large estate of water on the chest from his grandfather. He had had an operation performed upon him every morning of his life for eighteen years. He had been subject to the explosion of important veins in his body after the manner of fireworks. He had had something the matter with his lungs. He had had something the matter with his heart. He had had something the matter with his brain. Five hundred people who sat down to breakfast entirely, uninformed on the whole subject, believed before they had done with the breakfast that they privately and personally knew physician to have said to Mr. Myrtle, you must expect to go out some day like the snuff of a candle, and that they knew Mr. Myrtle to have said to the physician, a man can die but once. By about eleven o'clock in the forenoon, something the matter with the brain became the favorite theory against the field, and by twelve the something had been distinctly ascertained to be pressure. Pressure was so entirely satisfactory to the public mind, and seemed to make everyone so comfortable, that it might have lasted all day but for bars having taken the real state of the case into court at half-past nine. Pressure, however, so far from being overthrown by the discovery, became a greater favorite than ever. 
there was a general moralizing upon pressure in every street. All the people who had tried to make money had not been able to do it said, There you were. You no sooner began to devote yourself to the pursuit of wealth than you got pressure. The idle people improved the occasion in a similar manner. See, they said, what you brought yourself to by work, work, work. You persisted in working. You overdid it. Pressure came on, and you were done for. This consideration was very potent in many quarters, but nowhere more so than among the young clerks and partners who had never been in the slightest danger of overdoing it. These, one and all, declared, quite piously, that they hoped they would never forget the warning as long as they lived, and that their conduct might be so regulated as to keep off pressure and preserve them, a comfort to their friends, for many years. Just my case, if I had only known it, when I was quietly basking in the sunshine in my Kentish meadow. But while I so rested, thankfully recovering every hour, I had experiences more odd than this. I had experiences of spiritual conceit, for which, as giving me a new warning against that curse of mankind, I shall always feel grateful to the supposition that I was too far gone to protest against playing sick lion to any stray donkey with an itching hoof. All sorts of people seemed to have come vicariously religious at my expense. I received the most uncompromising warning that I was a heathen on the conclusive authority of a field preacher who, like the most of his ignorant and vain and daring class, could not construct a tolerable sentence in his native tongue or pen a fair letter. This inspired individual called me to order roundly, and knew in the freest and easiest way where I was going to, and what would become of me if I failed to fashion myself on his bright example, and was on terms of blasphemous confidence with the heavenly host. He was in the secrets of my heart, and in the lowest soundings of my soul, he, and could read the depths of my nature better than his ABC, and could turn me inside out like his own clammy glove. But what is far more extraordinary than this, for such dirty water as this could alone be drawn from such a shallow and muddy source, I found from the information of a beneficed clergyman, of whom I never heard and whom I never saw, that I had not, as I rather supposed I had, lived a life of some reading, contemplation, and inquiry, that I had too tenderly towards the knowledge and love of Savior, that I had never had, as I rather supposed I had had, departed friends, or stood beside open graves, but that I had lived a life of uninterrupted prosperity, and that I needed this checked overmuch, and that the way to turn it to account was to read these sermons and these poems, enclosed and written and issued by my correspondent. I beg it may be understood that I relate facts of my own uncommercial experience, and no vain imaginings. The documents in proof lie near my hand. Another odd entry on the fly-leaf of a more entertaining character was the wonderful persistency with which kind sympathizers assumed that I had injuriously coupled with the so suddenly relinquished pursuit those personal habits of mine most obviously incompatible with it, and most plainly impossible of being maintained along with it. As all that exercise, all that cold bathing, all that wind and weather, all that uphill training, all that everything else, say, which is usually carried about by express trains in a portmanteau and hat-box, and partaken of under a flaming row of gaslights in the company of two thousand people. 
this assuming of a whole case against all fact and likelihood struck me as particularly droll and was an oddity of which i certainly had had no adequate experience in life until i turned that curious fly-leaf my old acquaintances the begging letter writers came out on the fly-leaf very piously indeed they were glad at such a serious crisis to afford me another opportunity of sending that post office order i needn't make it a pound as previously insisted on ten shillings might ease my mind and heaven forbid that they should refuse at such an insignificant figure to take a weight off the memory of an erring fellow-creature one gentleman of an artistic turn and copiously illustrating the books of the mendicity society thought it might soothe my conscience in the tender respects of gifts misused if i would immediately cash up in aid of his lowly talent for original design as a specimen of which he enclosed me a work of art which i recognized as a tracing from a woodcut originally published in the late mr trollope's book on america forty or fifty years ago the number of people who were prepared to live long years after me untiring benefactors to their species for fifty pounds apiece down was astonishing also of those who wanted banknotes for stiff penitential amounts to give away not to keep on any account divers wonderful medicines and machines insinuated recommendations of themselves into the fly-leaf that was to have been so blank it was specifically observable that every prescriber whether in a moral or physical direction knew me thoroughly knew me from head to heel in and out through and through upside down i was a glass piece of general property and everybody was on the most surprisingly intimate terms with me a few public institutions had complimentary perceptions of corners in my mind of which after considerable self-examination i have not discovered any indication neat little printed forms were addressed to those corners beginning with the words i give and bequeath will it seem exaggerative to state my belief that the most honest the most modest and the least vainglorious of all the records upon this strange fly-leaf was a letter from the self-deceived discoverer of the recondite secret how to live four or five hundred years doubtless it will seem so yet the statement is not exaggerative by any means but is made in my serious and sincere conviction with this and with a laugh at the rest that shall not be cynical i turn the fly-leaf and go on again end of chapter thirty six recording by ginger cuckolo washington d c